0: Timothy chapter 2 this morning. 1 Timothy chapter 2 verses 1 to 7. We're actually going to dot around a few passages this morning, uh, but we'll start here. Uh, We are starting a new series in the book of Hebrews next week, uh, but this week we're returning to our slightly sporadic but very important series on the five solas or the five onlys of the Reformation. As we mark the 500th anniversary of that movement's inception. Uh, Maybe you're asking the question, what is the Reformation? I've never heard of that before, uh, and that's fair enough. What's the big deal with it? Well, the Reformation was a movement of God in and through a collection of key individuals in Europe uh, who looked at what the church was teaching about salvation in particular. How is a person uh, made right with God? And as they looked at this question, they realized, something, something's not quite right. So the Reformation was a rediscovery of the Bible, uh, a revolution in a sense in terms of salvation theology, how a person is made right with God, and a recentering of Jesus Christ as the one and the only hope of salvation. And that's why we're thinking about uh, one of the solas this morning, Christ alone. Uh, Anyone uh, who belongs to the church back then, 500 years ago, would happily say, how is a person saved? Oh, it's by faith. uh, It's by grace, through faith, in Christ. But there's a very, very big difference between saying that and by saying that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And I hope by the end of this sermon we understand the difference. Now, Christ alone as we look at it today, I want to say it's not about the exclusivity of Christ in relation to all other religions. That's not what this subject is about. It's not like the mountain with all the roads and paths going up different parts of the mountain and everyone eventually going to the same God. That's another sermon. Uh, This is about who you need to go through uh, to receive salvation. So let's pray together first, shall we? Lord, your word says that through Christ, we can approach your throne of grace with confidence and that when we do, we find mercy and grace to help us in our time of need. So help us now as we study your word in this vital topic. In Jesus' name, amen. So First Timothy uh, chapter 2 and I'll read from verses 1 to 7. I urge then first of all that petitions, prayers, intercession and thanksgiving be made for all people for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. This is good and pleases God our Savior, who wants all people to be saved and to come to our knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all people. This has now been witnessed to at the proper time, and for this purpose I was appointed a herald and an apostle. I'm telling the truth, I'm not lying, and a true and faithful teacher of the Gentiles. Amen. This is God's Word. So I want us to start by thinking this morning, first of all, about a mediator, to have a picture of a mediator in your mind. What is a mediator, and when do we need one? Well, a mediator is someone who works to help Uh, two people or two parties in bad relations reconcile their differences and restore good relations. Uh, Mediation is a big deal just now in the world of politics, uh, particularly in the Middle East with Saudi Arabia and Qatar at loggerheads. Uh, The Kuwaiti government, for example, is acting as a mediator to try and restore uh, good relations in that region. And of course, we know that uh, a certain Donald Trump and Kim Jong-un could also do with a little bit of uh, mediation as well. You're mad. No, you're mad. No, you're mad. See what I mean? Mediation has been requested, of course, in that dispute, but it's not just common in politics. It's common everywhere. It's common in the home. I mean, it's quite amazing how children can go from playing very happily together one moment to being irreconcilable enemies the next, and all over a lightsaber. Um. What is a parent in that situation if they are not a mediator? You know, it's not enough just to come in as a parent and lay down the law in there and remove the lightsaber altogether. You have to teach the children to figure out how to re-relate to each other and work out their differences, to be, as it were, reconciled. Now, I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but the Bible teaches that you and I need a mediator if we are to be reconciled to God. And here's why. 1 Timothy 2 verse 5, there is one God. There is one God. And this is the first of two main points this morning. Uh, What that passage tells us, just even in those few words, is that God exists. Uh, God is the creator of everyone and everything. He made human beings as the pinnacle of his creation and placed in us this unique ability, this, this relatability with him that sets us apart from everything else that he has made. Now, God exists, as that verse says, but here is the problem for us, for all of humankind. We are not in good relations with him. And the estrangement in this relationship, according to the Bible, is entirely one-sided. You see, the problem in this alienation is with us. We've acted in a way that offends God's person and his holy character. We're rebellious. We're defiant. We reject his authority and ignore his word. Now, the Bible calls all of that together sin. And sin is an offense against who God is. And sin is exactly the thing that puts this distance between us and God, who is holy. Uh, alienation is in fact the word that's used to describe the relationship that we have with him that relationship that is fundamentally broken down now what the reason why that is a problem for us is because that sin is deserving of punishment just as it would be if we broke a common law here in the UK uh, just as that the breaking of that law deserves punishment so the breaking of God's law does too and the punishment uh, that is due to those who break God's law and create this estrangement, is death. But here is the good news. The differences that we have and the alienation that exists is it's not irreconcilable. And that's what we see in verses 1 to 4 of 1 Timothy 2, actually. I wonder if you see both the problem and the solution. So, Paul, one of Christ's specially appointed messengers, an apostle, is writing to his, uh, I suppose if you are like, a trainee pastor, a pastor in training, Timothy, about what his church family should be doing. Look with me, verse 1, what does he want them to do? He says, I want you to pray for all people. Why does he want them to pray for all people? You know, kings and everybody else. Why? Verse 3, because God wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. You see God's heart in this already? He wants reconciliation. And these verses imply quite simply that people like us are in terrible danger because the thing that's been asked for is salvation. We're in a situation that's so bad that what we need is to be saved from it. Saved from what? Well, the punishment I just mentioned a few minutes ago. But these verses highlight for us that that hope is not lost, people can be saved, that's implying reconciliation, and knowledge of the truth in particular is the means by which people can be saved, that people can be reconciled to God and have their sins forgiven. So, the truth that he's talking about here in 1 Timothy uh, chapter 2 is, of course, the gospel, the good news of Jesus, his life, death, and his resurrection and what that means for us, Christ Jesus died for sin, uh, to bring us to God. And if people don't know the truth about that, then people will not be saved. That is the basic fly-by logic of 1 Timothy 2, 1-4. That's why believers like us, church family, should make it our daily and regular prayer to pray for all people everywhere, for those in high authority, and actually for everybody everywhere, so that they might be saved, reconciled to God, to realize that God exists, and they are not in good standing with Him. Now, there is still a problem in this whole situation, of course. It's the fact that God is, well, infinitely holy, perfect in who He is. There is still this, just, this great chasm between us, without this knowledge of the truth, without coming to Jesus Christ, we need someone to help because God just doesn't overlook sin. That would make him unjust and unfair. He can't just say, okay, let's, let's, let's wipe the slate. Let's start again. No, sin must be punished. We are a people, as he is holy, we are a people who are so sinful. Um, and, and that has a repelling effect. It's like when you try to put two magnets together of equal poles. They, they repel each other. That's what happens here. In the Old Testament book of Job, Job expresses the tension that people in this world ought to feel at this uh, situation where we have God's wonderful holiness and our sinfulness. He says, God is not a mere mortal like me that I might answer him, that we might confront each other in court. If only there were someone to mediate between us, someone to bring us together. Now, Job absolutely gets it here. We can't just sit down with God and talk this out. We need someone who can lay a hand on both of us, both God and man. We need a mediator. Someone who can identify with both sides adequately and represent us both. Now, who who can do that? Who can fulfill that role? Well, what would have been the answer 500 years ago, prior to the Reformation? Well, there would be many mediators that would be necessary to mediate between God and us. Well, they would say back then, you need Mary. Now, common to Catholic teaching at the time was the view that Jesus, never mind God the Father, was absolutely terrifying. So who could approach Jesus and get him to approach God in order to effect the reconciliation that was necessary for salvation? Well, who better than his mum? And that's why they prayed to Mary. In fact, Luther, one of the the key reformers back then, um, often prayed to a statue of Mary. Actually, so did I. Uh, I was raised in a Catholic family and attended Catholic primary and secondary school. I've attended mass a thousand times. I was an altar boy. I had a little red robe with a white tunic. Why is that funny? Uh, I, I, you know, I rang the bell when the priest lifted up the bread and so on. Like, I've been there, done that. I've sat in the confessional, spoken through the little pain. I lied in there. That was not good. Um, you know, there, I, I've, I've been through the kind of Catholic system, and I remember doing this. In fact, it's so funny just how much came rushing back to my memory as I reflected on this and prepared this sermon. I mean, at one point, as I was thinking about Mary uh, during my sermon prep this week, All of a sudden, I found myself just kind of staring blankly through my screen, saying, Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy may the Mother of God pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. I kept expecting Paul Rees to burst in and look alarmed, but, you know, it's there. And I just thought... Why why would you pray a prayer like that if you did not have the basic theological understanding and the simple belief that Mary is a mediator that's necessary to bring you to Jesus, to bring you to God? And that's why. In fact, today, even by virtue of the most recent Catholic council, she is still called a co-mediatrix and a co-redemptrix, with Jesus in salvation. So crucial is her role. Now, that's, so that's not just 500 years ago then. That's not a medieval blip. This is the most recent council. Now, they don't deny that Christ is the savior or the mediator, of course. I don't wanna say that at all, but they won't say that Christ alone is the mediator and Christ alone the savior. Now here's the strange thing that happened in this whole thing. Mary actually became so venerated within uh, Catholicism that even she became unapproachable. So what do you need if you, don't, if you can't approach Mary, you need somebody to be in good terms with her? Well, that's why you introduce the saints. You pray to the saints. Now in the Bible, a saint is anyone who is a believer, but in Catholicism, a saint is someone who's reached a particular level of merit a particular level of righteousness within their life that sainthood is apportioned to them or accredited to them, if you like, in the afterlife, in heaven. And uh, I still remember this as well. I remember some uh, holy days of obligation, they called, where, where you would be at a mass and then there would be this long kind of five or six minute thing where you would just go through this long list of saints and the priest would say, Saint Bartholomew, and then the congregation would respond, pray for us. I'm glad no one responded at that point. Uh, You know, St. Anne, pray for us. St. John, pray for us, and so on. And then you would finish, you know, it was all part of the liturgy there. And I remember, as a child, being encouraged to pray. I lost something. I can't remember what it was. And uh, I remember my mum giving me a little amulet with a picture of St. Luke on it. And she said, pray to St. Luke. So we were actively encouraged. I said, why? Luke, Luke was apparently the patron saint of lost things. It didn't work. I lost the amulet, actually, which is kind of ironic, but <laughs> but the point of it is the point of it is that that you know that God is so infinitely holy and Jesus so terrifying and Mary so venerated that you actually need some intermediaries to take that step and take that. See that see that Liam. He's all right. You know you know he he believes in Jesus, so we let him into heaven. You know, Let's, And then there were there were prayers constantly for you know, for the appropriating of God's grace. I'm gonna to get to that in a second. So there's, this is all that led to the church back then to magnify this office of Mary and then of the saints. But then, you knew there was something else coming, didn't you, because there was a box missing. The priests, the priests are officially viewed as a mediatorial office back then. That's how it worked. Uh, they would absolve sin through the sacraments and these special practices where grace is something that is dispensed to you. And the main way that a, a in other words, do you, get, do you hear what that, that means? I mean, they're saying there that grace is given to you only when you do certain things. That doesn't sound very gracious. Sounds like something you deserve. Now, the main way that a priest mediates for people is praying to saints or praying to Mary or praying to Jesus who talked to the Father was to celebrate the Mass where the body and blood of Jesus through the bread and the wine are basically re-offered in the Eucharist, as it's called, as an actual sacrifice. They believe in this thing called transubstantiation, which means that the bread and the wine become the actual flesh and blood of Jesus as it's consumed. And they would say that this is a re-offering of the body of Christ, a re-suffering, a a re-crucifying, if you like, of Christ. Now, one influential Catholic theologian from the 13th century called Thomas Aquinas said, human cooperation with Christ is necessary. Faith, love, and participation in the sacraments. And all of that kind of made some of these made these reformers who who had God's word in their hand and in their own language, it made their theological antennae twitch a bit. Something's not right with that. You know, it's like when you taste milk and it's slightly off. You're like, it kind of tastes like milk. That's not right, though. So what's with all the mediators? What's even with the priestly sacrifices, extra sacrifices? These were the questions that the reformers, like Luther and Calvin and Zwingli, you know, that, that made them question this. And this is what made them, in a sense, clear their throats and tap the church on the shoulder and say, excuse me, something's not quite right. I mean, that's what Martin Luther did 500 years ago on October 31st, 1517, when he nailed his 95 Theses to the door of the church at Wittenberg. He wanted to ignite a debate. He had honest questions about what the church was teaching and how it didn't correlate with what the plain teaching of the Bible. So he he wanted to start a debate, but he ignited a movement. Uh, I don't don't think of all the reformers that anyone wrote more about this or thought more about, about this than the Swiss reformer Zwingli. He said that there are not many mediators, but only one. There's no need for repeated sacrifice Only one was necessary, and it was offered once for all. Spingley said, We know from the Old and New Testaments that our only comforter, the word only in there, got him into big trouble. The only comforter, redeemer, saviour, and mediator with God is Christ Jesus, in whom and through whom alone we can obtain grace, help, and salvation. And besides, from no other being in heaven... Or on earth. That's everybody else, by the way. That's Christ alone right there. As Christ alone died for sin, so he is to be adored as the only mediator and advocate between God the Father and believers. So sweep everything else away. Everyone else away. It is contrary to the word of God to propose and invoke other mediators. He got 1 Timothy 2 verse 5. There is one mediator, and this is point two. One mediator, and only one who can stand in the middle, lay hands on both God and man, the one who is Christ Jesus. You see that in verse five? There is one mediator between God and humankind, the man Christ Jesus. Now, I want to show you quickly from the Bible that there are two things that qualify Jesus to be the only mediator, and it's quite simply who he is and what he's done. If anyone listens to Colin Buchanan songs with their kids, it's who he is and what he's done makes Jesus number one. No? You've not? Okay. just No one joined in. Thanks, parents. That was really kind of you. Um, So who he is and what he's done makes Jesus number one. All right? There's your little memory thing. Okay, I didn't remember what it was called. Anyway, who he is. Who he is, first of all. Now, what we're going to see in these passages I'm going to look at just now is the uniqueness of his identity and the sufficiency of his work. I'm gonna talk about his person and his sacrifice, right? Both of which together show that Christ and Christ alone is the only way, okay? So who he is? He is the God-man. Turn with me to John chapter one. If you're using one of the pew Bibles, it's on page 1036. John chapter one. Now, John begins here, at the start of his gospel, talking about this this enigmatic thing called the Word. But in no time at all, he refers to that Word with personal pronouns. So he's talking about a person. And uh, we come to understand very quickly that he's talking about Jesus Christ in particular. And this is what we read. In the beginning was the Word... That's Jesus. And the word was with God. Now, he's talking about the beginning, creation. And the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. You See what he's just done there? He's just clarified that Jesus is the creator of all things, and he decided to state it positively and negatively, just to make sure that you know there are no exceptions. Nothing has been made Nothing, without him, nothing was made that has been made, and in him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. Now, he has just said this word, Jesus, deity. He's just described him in terms that can only be ascribed to the Lord God of heaven and earth. But now, jump down to verse 14 with me. What did the eternal word do? The word became flesh And made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now here's where we start to get a bit of the insight. Who is the one that's doing all the work to reconcile these warring parties? You know the estrangement lies with us. God could very well stand over here and say, "Make your, take your best shot. Make your efforts. You've got to try and restore this situation." Don't we do that in our relationships? Well, I'm not saying anything to you until you apologize, etc. Now, what we're seeing in this passage is that God has taken the initiative. In love for us and out of a desire to restore us to himself, he's taken the first steps. How gracious. How wonderful is that. And what we see just in this short passage is that Jesus who came from the Father, full of grace and truth, was born He came into our world and he was born without original sin because he was conceived by the Holy Spirit. He lived a sinless life, a life of complete perfection, which is exactly what God needed. It's exactly what he needed to be to qualify him to be the blemish-free sacrifice who would die. Remember what I said earlier, the wages of sin is death? Well, keep that in mind because he went to the cross and went there as our substitute, taking the penalty, that is death, that we deserved on himself. And God proved just his utter delight and complete and total satisfaction at the sacrifice of Jesus on that cross. He proved that by raising him from the dead three days later. God declared him to be the son of God through his resurrection from the dead, said the apostle Paul. Now, showing us that he is both God and man. That's what John 1 tells us. Fully God, fully man. When he became a man, he did not lose anything of his deity. Therefore, making him unequaled in his identity. Who do you know can claim God-manness? No one. The uniqueness of his identity, who he is, that that's what qualifies him in the first instance to be our only mediator secondly what he's done turn back to 1 Timothy 2 and we read that he gave himself as a ransom for there verse 5 for there is one god and one mediator between god and mankind the man christ jesus who now here's where his mediatorial work comes in who gave himself as a ransom for all people, And he says this has now been witnessed to at the proper time, in other words, by those who saw it, by those who declare it, by the apostles first, and all those who declare the word of the apostles as we have it in Holy Scripture. He said he gave his life as a ransom in particular. Now, the idea of a ransom is pretty straightforward. It's paying the price for someone's release. Kidnappers and hijackers do this kind of thing, demand a price to be paid for the one that they hold. And of course, when that price is paid, the one held captive is released. And it's a very, very important image for us as we're understanding the cross. It implies that human beings are being held captive, uh, but not by other people, but by their own sin. So to say that Jesus gave his life as a ransom implies that his own life was the price that was necessary for our release from our captivity to our sin he laid down his life for us so that we who were alienated from him far away from him might be reconciled to him and brought near he he, he paid the price with his blood friends And to say that Jesus gave his life as a ransom implies that his own life was the price that was necessary for our release. For our freedom. 1 Peter 1.18 says, You know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed, ransomed you could say, from the empty way of life that had been handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Jesus. Now, the big question that hangs over all this, though, is that is salvation through Christ or alone, or do we need to keep on topping up that grace with the Eucharist and with extra sacrifices in some way? Well, Hebrews chapter 7, turn with me, actually 7 to 10, if I'm going to be naughty, offers a resounding, a biblical, and an authoritative, no, no, honestly, I really just want to go back to chapter 5, verse 11, and read all the way through to the end of chapter 10, but time does not permit, so I will let you do that this afternoon at some point, it's just glorious, when you think about a subject like this, and then you read a, a, a book, this section in the book, the middle section of Hebrews, as it's laid out for us, it's incredible, incredible, what we see in here is that this saving work of Christ in the cross is entirely sufficient. We're going to enjoy our time in Hebrews, by the way, in the coming weeks, but one of the things that we see again and again in these passages in relation to his person and his work is the sufficiency of it. Now, the author of Hebrews is writing to people who believe the gospel but are actually tempted to go back to some of the Jewish practices that were outlined for them in the law. And in the Old Testament, God had set up this whole system of Um, Forgiveness of sins through the sacrifice of animals uh, Sacrifices that had to be offered within the priestly system So by priests But but the writer says Don't go back to that kind of thing Why do you want to go back to that kind of model? Don't you get the glory of the gospel yet? The superiority of Jesus the, The completeness of his work let me show you two examples in relation to both the priests and the offering of sacrifices, right? Priests, first of all, Hebrews 7.27 talks about Jesus being a better priest. Okay, remember what I said earlier about the priestly role, mediation, and so on? Now, listen out for the words that talk of who he is and what he's done that make Jesus number one, right? Okay? Unlike the other high priests he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day. So, not repeatable. First for his own sins and then for the sins of the people, he sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself, right? Over to Hebrews 9.12. Now, the writer is talking about Jesus being the sacrifice. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, so obtaining eternal redemption. What is the phrase that links those two verses? What is the phrase in there that is repeated again and again between Hebrews chapter 6 and Hebrews chapter 10 in relation to priesthood, in relation to sacrifices? What's the phrase? Once for for just a week for until the next generation comes no once for all once for all once for all no more priests no more sacrifices the price is fully paid it is Christ alone Christ alone no other mediator Christ alone once for all means once for all and hebrews 9:12 i love it i love it the sacrifice he offered obtained eternal redemption no more obtaining to do brothers and sisters no hoops to jump through salvation is by f- grace alone it's a gift a free gift through faith alone in christ alone Now, I want you to understand that in what I'm saying today, especially if you're here today, you're not a Christian, or if you're here today and you'd be somebody who would hold to the Catholic faith, I am not bashing Catholicism here. I want to offer what I believe is an orthodox position that is based on the authority and the sufficiency and the clarity of God's holy scripture. And I wanna hold to that with this humble orthodoxy. I want to invite you to engage with this and think this through. This isn't all about bashing Catholics. This is about answering the fundamental question and getting it right. How is a man or a woman or a child made right with God? And we would be, oh, we would be the worst teachers ever if we never considered these things. Hebrews 9 says that Jesus is the mediator of a better covenant, one that cannot be bettered. And my encouragement for you today, if you're here and you're not a Christian, or if you hold to all the things that I've already been talking about in relation to the Catholic faith, my encouragement for you would be to Turn to Jesus and trust Christ alone for your salvation. He is the only one who has paid the price. I would be delighted to talk to you about this afterwards. Uh, A sermon like this can often raise more questions. I'll be at the door for about 15 minutes after the service. I'd love to chat with you about this. And brothers and sisters, how do we apply this? Well, we don't really have a lot of time to go into this at all. I want you to do what Paul does, by the way. That's the first thing in, chap- in, in chapter 2 of 1 Timothy. I want you to pray. I want you to pray for all people everywhere that they would be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. That's why Paul talks about this doctrine. I want you to speak openly with people who want to discuss these matters of who Christ is, of how you're saved, about whether you need to add to it in any particular way. And go with that person to the Bible and discover it for yourself. And we should certainly rejoice. <laughs> this, is, this is incredible. There is nothing that we could have done to make ourselves right with God's. There is nothing that we nor any other person, as Zwingli said, in heaven or on earth to mediate between us and God bar one, Christ Jesus. And so I leave you with those last words from Hebrews chapter 10. therefore, brothers and sisters, as a result of understanding the perfect once-for-all sufficiency of Christ's priesthood, the perfect once-for-all sufficiency of Christ's sacrifice of himself, Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened up for us through the curtain, that is His body, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance of faith that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience, having our bodies washed with pure water. Verse 39, for we do not belong to those who shrink back and are destroyed, but to those who have faith and are saved. Job done, says Jesus. Who he is, what he's done, makes him number one. Let's praise him, shall we? Let's praise